I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Through Their Eyes, our special series featuring Utah teenagers discussing current events on Utah's Morning News with Tim and Amanda. Such a pleasure this week to welcome Sarah, Noah, and Elena to the program to talk about the news of the week, and we have some very interesting topics. Welcome, welcome to all of you, to our returning guest, Miss Elena, and to our <laughs> new guest, Mr. Noah and Miss Sarah. We have some interesting ones, and we'll get to impeachment. We'll get there. We'll get there in a moment. But first, I thought this was a really interesting topic, particularly for people of your age, but really for all of us. Um, I saw an article in the USA Today about the battle to get rid of the SAT and the ACT. I think, am I right? I think the ACT is required in Utah high school. Is that right, Noah? I, I believe so, yeah. So this is the battle to get rid of these tests. And the argument is something like they don't really measure your ability to be eff- effective or, or good in college. It's just, well, you you tell me what you think. Yeah. Um, I mean, personally, I like have very strong opinions on the ACT. Uh, I took the ACT when I was 13, actually. And, uh, Why? I, I was going into college. So, At 13? Yeah. Uh huh. Wow. Anyways, so um, and I also took it with two of my older siblings, and I think it was kind of interesting to see how we all scored, and then looking now at like how that re- uh, correlated with our success in college. And for example, I had one sibling who she studied a ton, um, but instead of studying the material, she mostly just studied how to take a test and she did pretty good she got a 32 and then uh there's me who i'm slightly dyslexic and i am terrible at taking tests but i'm super good at problem solving so i studied quite a bit and ended up getting like a 27 and then i have my other sister who she's really good at test taking like she can be given a test hardly know the material and somehow just does well every time so she only took i think one practice test and she got like a 35 she was one question away from getting a 36 and a 36 then, is a perfect score yeah, uh-huh. okay. anyways and so but then as we went throughout our classes it was kind of interesting because we all did almost exactly the same in all of our courses, no matter the class we were taking. Um, and so I just think the ACT puts you in a certain situation that's extremely unique to anything you're going to see in the real world or even in college. And so I just think that 
it's a weird measure, not of how good you are at learning and solving problems, but at how good you are at basically learning how to take a test. Hmm. You're nodding your head. Real quick, I'm just kind of in shock at his whole story. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, that's... I know, I was doing oh. a whoa, too. I'm like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just don't feel like qualified to speak on this with him, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah, to me, like, I'm, I'm not in college, <laughs> but I have a lot of friends who are, especially where I work, and it's kind of like finals week, almost. Like, they spend, you're supposed to be learning this all the time while you're in high school or college, and then they try to recram it in, like, one or two weeks of teaching, and then hours of back-to-back testing, which the students almost immediately forget the material, which shows that it's, like, not something that's important, or that if we forget it, it's detrimental to our education, I'm like, I'm homeschooled. I love learning. A lot of my learning comes from books or audiobooks or just anything I can get my hands on. Love reading articles. And I do feel like I'm kind of more of like a test taker. Like, yeah, I got this, like, whatever. But it's very stressful. And I think like a lot of people I know are super smart, but they don't do well on the ACT or SAT scores because it's it's stressful. It's nerve-wracking. It's this could determine your entire future. And I think if we put so much emphasis on this one thing, especially in situations where it's like it disadvantages people from poor neighborhoods or lower income households because they don't have time to study this. They're either working trying to support their family or or siblings or friends or whatever they can. Hmm. And so like when it comes to the ACT and SAT tests, with how smart people are, I don't think that should be the only thing to consider. What do you think, Sarah? Um, I think that it's important that we have different qualifications for people to meet in order to get into college. A lot of people argue that the ACT is important because it helps people who have a lower income because they can't, like, if they only accepted people on base, basing it on experience, depending on how many humanitarian trips they went on, how many extracurricular activities they were involved in, students with a much lower income can't really afford the same types of extracurricular activities that others can. However, I do think that the ACT should be significantly changed in its structure. As they said, it's mainly a test on how you take tests. And so I think that if it was more based on how well you actually know the subjects, because that's going into college, you're hopefully going in because you want to study something that you love or that you feel really good and comfortable with. But taking the ACT doesn't determine that. And so I think when they're looking at college applications, that they should have the option to let them take the ACT or to let them not take the ACT, just depending on their income or their situation, so that not necessarily that they should get rid of it, but that they shouldn't force it on the students because there are so many different ways to see how experienced students are or how well they're going to do in college than by just seeing how good they are at taking a test. You know, I remember years ago, I, I was a lawyer for a brief time and, and I took the bar exam. And so, of course, everybody sweats the bar exam. And um, I was lucky enough to pass the bar exam after you know, making myself insane studying for the exam. But I, I had a conversation with a man who went on to be a judge who shall remain nameless. <laughs> but his <laughs> argument was that the bar does not tell us who will be good lawyers. It tells us who can regurgitate material that then is promptly forgotten or that you would you would never make a legal decision or offer advice based on memory. You would always double check, 
triple check, quadruple check. So you cram it in there so you can regurgitate it on the bar exam, and you will never act from memory in your career as a lawyer or a judge ever again. You will always. Do. So the exam is almost like a, a an endurance test. And is that really, is that, is that what determines what makes a good lawyer? So I, I don't know whether that's comparable at all to the question of the ACT I think it applies and a the lot. SAT. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's very similar in the sense that they're not, they're not going to use a lot of what they do in preparation for the ACT in college. Really, the best way to understand is to go to college. And so. college is changing so much. Yes. What, what, when I went to college 30 years ago, it's an entirely different endeavor for what the three of you are going through. I mean, with especially with it being digital in so many ways, how much of it is digital. Your learning experience is who even knows? How do you even test for that yeah. anymore? <laughs> um, any other thoughts on that subject? Yeah, Please. I, I mean, I think that not only applies to the ACT, but also to just how schooling in general works. Like, there are so many classes I've taken. Like, for example, my finals were just this past Thursday. And there was this one class that it was one of those classes where you study, you go to class, uh, you do some homework, do some assignments, and then you go into the testing center and take your test. And I was thinking about it at the end of the semester preparing for finals, and I was like, you know, I don't think I really learned anything in this class. Oh, that's tragic. That's just tragic. I was like, I mean, I'm... I'm getting good grades, but I don't think that I've truly learned anything or at least anything that I'm going to be able to use. Whereas I have this, uh, I also had this business statistics class where he was very much, he tried to model his classroom after something that you would see in a real world environment. Bravo. And so he had his tests. They were open book, open note, open neighbor. He encouraged you to go out. And they were hard questions. And you would it took time to figure them out. Um, but then through that, it's now ingrained in my mind. And still to this day, I mean, like, stuff will come up. And I'll be like, hey, you know, I remember how I did this. And now I can run some regression analytics on it. And, you know, it's just stuff that now I'm using in my everyday life because I saw how it works in everyday life. Bravo. There's much to be learned uh, for for the faculty, for administration, for all of us moving forward. Thank you for that great uh, discussion. I want to move on to uh, another topic that was quite controversial. And I can't wait to hear what you think about the selection of, and I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce her name correctly. Is it Greta Thunberg? Greta, Greta Thunberg? This is the person who was selected as Time Magazine's Person of the Year. 16-year-old climate uh, activist. And she is uh, a person who has Asperger's Syndrome. And that is relevant only because, after reading about her, I learned that she um, she doesn't really respond to what people think about her very much. When she learned about the threat to the climate, rather than just learn about it and then move on, she shut down. She stopped eating. She became so involved with that information that her parents feared for her health. And only through 
activism did she begin to come back to the world. That was that was her Asperger's playing uh, with the information that she took in about what was happening in the world. She had no idea that going out and standing in front of something with a sign as one person would lead to this worldwide thing. Before she knew it, there was a second person there, then there were a hundred people, then there were thousands of people all over the world. That was not her intention. She doesn't want the spotlight. Um, in fact, I think that she has a hard time with it. I wonder what you think about her selection as Time Magazine's Person of the Year, and I'll start with you, Olena. Okay, so I will say that I think Gre- Greta? 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 I don't know how to say it. For Frank. I'm just going to say Greta because Greta, Greta, Greta is what we say, yeah. Um, <laughs> I do think she's trying to do what's good. I love that she has that spark, that it matters to her, and she's doing what's important to her. That being said, I went to the UN Civil Society Conference when it met here in Salt Lake, and I was just kind of shocked by how little hope they had. I mean, it's easy to see how in that situation they legitimately think there's no hope for the future. What do you mean when you say that? Um, just like a lot of the representatives there who spoke to us, especially the youth representatives, they were like, we have no hope for the future. And I disagree. I think we are the hope. And I think especially when we look back on history and see not only what activists have accomplished, but what are like people like our founding fathers who took something that was impossible and turned it into the only solution, we can build off of those principles and there is hope. And... Like, do you want me to speak about her nomination? Oh, sure. Um, So I was actually doing some research in this because, I mean, I I disagree with some of her policies and the way she goes about doing it, but she wasn't actually considered for the nomination. She was a fourth runner-up, so fifth, like, person, Uh and it originally went to the Hong Kong protesters. Oh, yes. Because they do it by nomination of, like, the readers. Like, anyone can submit, like, this is who I want for the person of the year, and everyone votes on it. Mm -hmm. They got the majority of the votes. But they, because it's too controversial, no one wants to talk about the Hong Kong protests, they gave it to her instead. What do you mean nobody wants to talk about the Hong Kong protests? Um, a lot of big magazines, like Times, who have ties to because the Chinese of Chi- government. Oh, because of the pressure from China. Yeah, it's like we saw with the NBA, where they supported the Hong Kong protests, and they were automatically shut down. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. do we want Chinese money, or do we want to do what's right? Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. What do you say, sir? Um... I agree with Elena. Like I, I'm grateful, or I guess I implore Greta. I don't know what the word <laughs> is for her ambition and for, as Elena put it, her spark. The fact that she has conviction and passion to something she finds to be so important to, as you said, stop eating over. Um, but because of the way that the Times went about nominating. I don't think that she should have been selected as first because she was fifth runner up. And I think that with a lot of the industries, the business industries and everything, because of having controversial topics, they will choose to go on the side that's less dangerous, which I think is just digging us into a deeper hole. John Adams once said something along the lines of if we waited to publish something until we were sure it wouldn't offend anyone, very little would ever be published. And because the Times didn't nominate the Hong Kong protesters as number one to avoid um, controversy, I think that that was a big mistake on their part. 
because the more we try to hide from diversity, the more we actually build up because we're not accomplishing anything. And although climate issues are going to affect a lot of people in the future, currently in Hong Kong, they're being affected now. And that's something we need to speak about now, mm-hmm. not the future as much. Interesting. Interesting. No, what did you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it's admirable, admirable uh, what she's done and is doing. I think it shows a lot of um, courage. I mean, she's had a lot of flack and pushback from a ton of people. And I don't agree with everything that she says or, like uh, you've mentioned, the ways that she went about it. Um, nonetheless, I do think that what she was able to accomplish is something that is should at least be respected as seen as that. Whether or not she necessarily deserves the nomination, I'm honestly still a little undecided about. I think there's a lot of politics that go into the time that w- went into the Times Magazine uh, and their decision on who to nominate as the person of the year. But ultimately, I think it's less important about what the Times Magazine says, hey, this is the person of the year, because ultimately all it is is a news story about you. And I think it's more important about what we see that as and who we respect and ultimately how we respond. Now, that's really interesting because ultimately this is a magazine coming out with a really hyped story. And that's all it is. Uh, We're all covering a really hyped story about who they're making their person of the year. You're exactly right. Ultimately, it's how we respond to their selection, whether it's President Trump or someone else or this 16-year-old girl. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Can please, I say something on please, that? Lena. So they try to pick someone who's had the most influence on the world, whether for good or bad. Yes. They made it one year, Adolf Hitler yes. was ma- was person of the year mm-hmm. for Times Magazine. So I don't think it's necessarily an issue of like what's controversial versus like conflict of interest. They don't touch the Chinese government because that's just something you don't do. But we can talk about Hitler and make him the person of the year. Maybe it's money. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you for your comments on that. All right. I want to go to um, a story that was quite a lengthy story, and, and I hope that I didn't ruin uh, your weekend or an evening in, in assigning you this long of a story. <laughs> and, and maybe you didn't even take the time to read it, and I wouldn't blame you one bit if you didn't, because this is the long story in the Washington Post about Afghanistan. Um, what we know and what we don't know about the war in Afghanistan, which reminds me from my generation of uh, what we call the Pentagon Papers. And when those were, um, those were leaked, and uh, they were leaked to the media, and it was a very difficult decision about whether or not to publish the Pentagon Papers, because at the time, um, it there was a serious concern that both the New York Times and the Washington Post had as to if we publish those papers with the admission of lies from the highest levels, would it put any soldiers in harm's way? Would it affect the ongoing war in Vietnam in some negative way? Um, because it showed that we knew that we had lied about the status of the Vietnam War to the American people. So there are similarities 
differences, to be sure, but there are similarities. Uh, because it's been said that this r- r- paper in the, this report in the Washington is this day and age's Pentagon Papers. When you learned about some of these truths, Sarah, what did you think? I think it's really sad that we've been on the war on terror for over 18 years. Um, And reading into it, according to the Pentagon budget data that was released to Congress in 2017, the average American taxpayer has paid $7,500 towards the wars in Afghanistan, Iran, and Syria since 2001 with the attacks on 9-11 which is an enormous amount of money to take from the people for taxes. And according to the Constitution, Congress is given the right to tax the people on three reasons. If it's to pay off national debts, to promote the general welfare, or to provide common defense. And a lot of people would argue saying that it's providing common defense, but it isn't accomplishing any good. Mm -hmm. If it was accomplishing good, if we were winning the war, we wouldn't still be in the war this many years into the future and seeing the data released that showed how many have been killed how much damage is being done especially in their country not in our country necessarily i don't think that we should continue um trump is trying to send more over into afghanistan but i think that we need to withdraw them and and even though what happened on 9-11 was very awful and cannot even be expressed in words the devastation that it brought to America. The devastation that we are causing in those other countries is also inexpressibly bad. And I think that the way to help solve that would be to stop taking the people's tax money towards a task that isn't being accomplished. When you read, Noah, about how the, even the generals themselves said, we have no idea what we're doing over here. How did that make you feel? I mean, I, I think it's surprising, shocking. I think the biggest thing here is just the precedent and danger that this presents. Uh, because there's nothing more dangerous. Usually, you try to be, as a government or as an organization or company, you try to be as transparent as possible. But there are for classified information and stuff. It can't be transparent, which when you can't be transparent, it takes away a certain element of a check and balance. And so I think it's extremely dangerous when we have these programs that are classified that no one can see and it would be impossible for them to be transparent when those start to become corrupt that presents a true danger and a slippery slope that who knows where it yeah be. like the, the one part of the article that was shocking to me is when it talked about the amount of money that was given elena to so, i mean so much money of course, they were. There, there was corruption. How could there not be corruption when we gave them that much money? Yeah. Um. Am I? Yes. Please. Okay. Well, one of my like favorite political cartoons. It's of. It's like various people seated at a table. One of them is labeled like arts, science, healthcare, and the tables are their tables are just barren. There's nothing. There. It's like patches in the tablecloths, and then in the corner is a table labeled war. And it's obviously like politicians just piling money on top of this table to feed the greed of war. And I think that's exactly what's occurring here. Um, 
what is it, like 27% of the American people trust the government and these institutions that are meant to represent them and protect them. And these papers, I'm not quite sure how that would affect the statistic. It could easily lower it, but also the transparency does have the probability of increasing the amount of trust because, like, I mean, hiding things is bad. Mm -hmm. But if we can know that you won't continue to hide these things from us, that whatever you are trying to hide will at one point or another come to clarity and be shown in the public eye, I do think that has the probability of increasing trust. I know that we wanted to achieve a certain result in Afghanistan, that we wanted to encourage democracy. And, you know, I look back at history when Russia just, you know, wiped their hands of Afghanistan and said, we're out of here. You know, we can't, we can't make, we can't do it. And they left, think, it was, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying the description, of course, but we, we've had enough. We've had enough. We're out of here. And there's a part of me that thinks that I, I know that there, it, it's certainly not the end that any, any of us would want. But perhaps we're to a point, Noah, where we should just, is there any part of you with your understanding that sees that as a possibility? Yeah, I mean, I, it's a super tricky situation. And I mean, in my personal opinion, I don't think we should have ever gone into Afghanistan. Because the problem is... Even we, with Osama bin Laden? I think we should have had clear objectives. And I mean, with Osama bin Laden, you can go... Take out Osama bin Laden, and then I think you try to retreat as quickly as possible without creating as much, with limiting uh, as much of a power vacuum type situation as you can. Without nation building is what I'm hearing you yeah, say. Exactly. And so the the real issue with the U.S. trying to reconstruct the Middle East and try to change it to however we want it or whatever, is that they don't want that. And I've known a couple people who have actually gone and fought in Afghanistan, and they've all said that nobody wants them in Afghanistan. The people who they're fighting against don't want the U.S. there, and the people who they're fighting with also don't want them there. And so I think the best thing that the U.S. can do is take is get out as quickly as they can, but they need to also consider that they need to do it in a responsible manner to make sure that the vacancy that the U.S. creates when it leaves doesn't supply a platform for some other terrorist group or corrupt government. To and I us. don't know, Sarah, if we can control that. I mean, that's the best possible situation, but I don't know. I mean, what's your thought about that? Any thought about, about that? About retreating about, from Afghanistan? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, well, I feel like Osama bin Laden died, was it 2010, 2011? Mm -hmm. And considering that we've still been there for a really long time under the pretense of we're trying to fight al-Qaeda and seeing as how we haven't accomplished much, I do think that retreating is the best way, but I don't even... Because we've caused so much damage that I almost feel like in order to coincide with just war theories and all of that and trying to be a more moral-based government that we should offer some type of recompense to some of the cities that we've helped destroy, whether that's offering them some money, helping them to rebuild some of what we've taken over. Um, but I don't think it needs to be abundant necessarily, but I definitely agree that we need to withdraw from Afghanistan. My guests this week on Through Their Eyes, Sarah, Noah, and Elena are here, and we'll be back in just a moment.
I want to talk with my guests this week on Through Their Eyes about a, t- a difficult subject, tax reform. I know. Ah! <laughs> Who wants to talk about tax reform? But can I limit it? Can I limit it to just, well, you can discuss it from as broad a perspective as you want to. But the main part of it that I'm interested in is the tax on food. Because the tax reform that our state legislature undertook recently, um, they they approached it from a number of angles, uh, putting some taxes on services and so on. But they reinstituted the tax on food, which was removed a number of years ago. Is that a good idea, Elena? Go ahead, right, right ahead. Well, first of all, when I was looking into this, I could not find where the money was going. Like, if you're almost tripling the tax on food. It needs to be going somewhere. Is it going to politicians' pockets? Is it going to social programs? And first off, like, okay, I, I, I have a passion for taxes. Not politicians' pockets. Let me Not just pol- interject okay, there it? because what the uh, the general fund. The amount of money that's coming in from sales taxes is going down because we're living in a service society. So instead of buying lawnmowers, we're all hi- hiring lawnmowers. Instead of buying things, we're all hiring people to do things. And so the amount of sales tax it, that's in the sales tax coffers is going down, 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 down. And so they project out and realize we need to do something to raise this in the future. And they saw the most stable form of, of now I'm probably not making their case for them very well, <laughs> the most stable form of tax is the sales tax on food because everyone eats, even though they realize that that will have a negative form on the poor. That's why they're offering sales tax credits. But there's an argument against that, of course, because you know, not all, everyone will take advantage of those credits, et cetera, et cetera. I'm probably making it more confusing, but go okay. right ahead. Oh, thank you so much for explaining that because yeah. it was like so frustrating to not know what was happening. But I think like part of the way like free markets work is that if you don't want to you know, pay the sales tax or pay the extravagant cost of something, you go and find it in other means. People don't like, especially like with this tax raise, people are not going to be happy with it. And I think more people are going to turn to like sustainable homegrown farming. And because there's so many like, um, square foot gardening, it's so it's one of the most effective forms of gardening for compact living. So if you live in a townhome or a small piece of property or even like an apartment on your balcony, you can do this. And if they're seeing like sales taxes going down because people don't want to buy these goods, what can they expect on the other side with food? I think others are going to turn to what they can do to avoid this. That's really interesting. And I had not thought of that. But now I'm thinking... I have a little a little patch of ground in my backyard, and I should take advantage. <laughs> well, how did you understand this? Now? Yeah, I mean, I so just a little bit of background. I moved from San Diego about a year and a half ago, where there is no sales tax on food whatsoever. Um, what they do do is they'll have taxes on some of the more unhealthy foods, like soda, for example. If you go and buy a soda, you have about a fifteen cent tax on every can. Um, and that way it just encourages healthier behavior for people. I think, though, ultimately, I think there are better ways of increasing tax revenue than taxing food. Because, like you mentioned, yes, there could offer rebates, but those are most likely and most usually loopholes like that are taken advantage of by people who don't need them. And that's my big issue with a lot of taxes and how they're run is the poor and middle class 
end up paying the majority of the taxes because the upper class is able to hire attorneys and accountants who can maximize these loopholes that are created for the people in the middle and lower classes. So I think there are other tax incentives that could be placed on whether you wanted to place one on services or other any or even just increasing the state property tax, something like that, um, that doesn't affect everyone in the way that uh, tax flat tax on food does. We got so many texts here at KSL that said, I can't stand in the grocery line with my tax rebate on food. <laughs> you know, I can't. They're not going to. The cashier's not going to take that. To, exactly. to your point, well, what do you think, Sarah? Um, sorry, could you correct me if I'm wrong? Were you saying the reason we don't have a lot of they don't have a lot of the taxes they want is because so much is going towards welfare programs? Is no, that- uh, I think that that uh, it's more that they're concerned about how since the economy is changing, the paradigm is changing in that we are we are becoming more of a service oriented economy than a purchasing or, uh, economy. That uh, they're looking at that 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 macroeconomic picture and thinking we've got to find a way to to get our tax base to match the kind of economy we have okay. at least does that does that make yeah. sense yeah. Spe- go um, ahead so i feel like we're, we already have a lot of taxes that are being taken from us each year and a lot of them are going towards the military health care social security which are also not in my opinion most of those are not very constitutional at least to the extent that they take them so i think that one solution in order to for them to still get the taxes that they see they need without raising our food tax and causing the people to possibly become more destitute is to take the money to not put so much of our taxes towards those organizations and to instead use them for what they think is needed so much that they can tax our food to the percentage that they're taxing them. So you're speaking about reducing services rather than yes. increasing yeah. taxes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on this on this topic? Um, I want to ask you now about the topic I know you've been really looking forward to discussing, <laughs> and that's uh, impeachment. Um, uh, I should disclose that we are discussing this topic before the vote takes place in the House. We expect it to pass in the House, uh, two articles of impeachment. Uh, we expect to pass in the House likely tomorrow. No, sorry, yes, likely tomorrow, Wednesday, the 18th of December. And then the uh, process of a trial will take place in the Senate. Sarah, you discuss this from any angle you'd like to discuss it, <laughs> because I know it's sort of a wide open thing, and the timing is strange as I bring this subject matter to you, because we're right in the middle of it. I mean, as I'm talking to you, the Rules Committee is meeting right now. So what, what, what are you focusing on? What's interesting to you about this subject? I honestly have no idea if it's going to pass or not because I feel like with how controversial it is and how divided it is that it could be easy to see why it would or wouldn't pass because considering how long people have been talking about impeachment you would think that if the tables really were turned to the point where it was the majority of people who wanted this to happen that he would be impeached by now but on the other but on the other hand there are a lot of supporters for him, which has kept him in office, but it's it's hard to really read what's going to actually happen in office. And regarding whether or not Trump should be impeached, 
I think it's obvious to say that, just generally speaking, if the president or any other government official or someone in a position of power oversteps the bounds given to them, that there needs to be action taken. And as we've seen with many presidents in the past, they have done several things that have been incredibly unconstitutional, but nothing necessarily happened because of it. Hmm. And now I'm not saying that we should allow that to justify keeping officials in office. I think that we need to take steps in order to make sure that we're doing what we're supposed to, that when they go over their boundaries, we need to take them out of office. Um, And there's been a lot of controversies and conspiracy theories and everything surrounding Trump and whether or not what he did is deserving of impeachment. And a lot of them are really confusing and a lot of politics getting wounded up in them. But I think it's just important to keep in mind that a lot of people are putting this in the perspective of it's Trump. So we have to support him or not support him. But really, we just need to think of it as he's the president. And as the president, are you going to support a president who is doing what the Constitution allows him to do or who is stepping over their boundaries? That's interesting. Um, one more question before I ask your your uh, cohorts here. Um, are How interested in this are you? Are you interested in it and watching it? Or are you tuning out? I'm curious. <laughs> I'm I'm very interested in the outcome and in politics. Um, when it comes to actually digging deeper and going into the conspiracy theories, I usually remain a little more objective in the sense that I don't like to get wound up in it too deep to the point where it becomes a really passionate and angry topic for me. But I'm very, very interested in what's going to end up happening because I find the government and politics and knowing about the Constitution a very important subject that I think a lot of um, people my age don't really care about a lot, which is really sad. But I think it's it's very important. Mm. What about you, Elena? Are, are you engaged? Do you enjoy... <laughs> Are you into this, or are you, are you just waiting for it to be over? <laughs> a little of both, to be honest. Because on one hand, this presidency and every presidency in my life, I've just been kind of stressed out from the moment I was born. <laughs> and especially with this impeachment, I think regardless of whether or not it passes, this is historic. I mean, only two have been in, this is the, the third impeachment inquiry. And, I mean, okay, I'm not really a fan of any modern presidents. I think after, like, Ulysses S. Grant, with, I mean, put throwing Andrew Johnson and Andrew Jackson into the mix of the other side of that, none of our presidents have really been moral people. I, um, I mean, we can count, like, William Henry Harrison, because he died after, like, a month, is off, a month in office. He didn't do anything detrimental to the country. He didn't have time to. But you really see all of them as being immoral in some way. Yeah, a lot of them, there's a significant decline in the morality. And they were like, no, we have to remain objective. We have to remain objective. And I'm the president. I can do what I want. And that really started after um, President Ulysses S. Grant. Why do you say that? Just like looking at the history of what they've done. Hmm. And the policies they supported, laws they've got passed, who they put in like Supreme Court nominations, it's just that makes terrifying. me sad, Elena, to to look at the entirety of 
all of those administrations. I'm not saying you're wrong. I mean, I mean that I, I, that's an opinion that you have about those. But but to think of all of those administrations as being immoral that makes me sad. It, well, not even necessarily. Well, I'm sure some of them try were trying to do the moral thing. Yeah. But a lot of them passed policies or laws that were detrimental to our country's health. Yeah. Yeah. And I see that as a sign of immorality because mm-hmm. there's no connection. There's no responsibility because they've removed themselves from that. Mm-hmm. So when you watch this impeachment process, what do you what do you expect? What do you focus on now? Kind of like what Sarah said, like if someone's stepping out of line, if the president who is not above the law steps out of line, then he needs to be held responsible. If 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 an average citizen were to commit treason, they would be punished. So what makes the president so high and mighty that he can do what he wants? What do you think, Noah? Yeah, um, that's a very interesting thought. <laughs> I think, ultimately, like, I've never been a big fan of Trump. Um, and not necessarily... I think it was just the way that he went about, especially coming after a president like Obama, who was very much diplomatic, knew how to work with people. And then it's a very stark transition coming over to Trump. The There are kind of two things that do bother me a little bit about the whole impeachment process. I do agree that I think what Trump did um, is probably worthy of impeachment. And... But I, what bothers me a little bit is how divided and political it became. How instead of people saying, did this person do something wrong? All of a sudden, it was Republicans versus Democrats. And so I kind of take issue with that. I think going forward into the Senate, I don't see him being convicted. Uh I'm not entirely sure what rules of evidence apply, but even if the federal rules of evidence do apply to the Senate case and trial, then I highly doubt that much of the evidence is going to be admissible anyways. So I ultimately don't think that I think he will stay in office and I think he'll probably run again. And ultimately, I think that there could even be a chance that he's the first president ever to be impeached and then reelected. Um, he is a president of first. He <laughs> is. I do think, though, it's inter- it's important to look at stuff outside of this because I think if we look at what Trump did and we say that's wrong, then I think in a similar manner, especially if Trump is convicted by the Senate, I think if you look at what the Bidens have done, I completely agree that I think Joe Biden should also be barred from running. Mm. Interesting. Um, how in- oh, Before I move on, how interested in this process are you? Or are you just sick of it? I mean, I will say I've become l- slightly less interested with just the amount of press every time I pull up my phone, look at the news, <laughs> Trump inquiry, impeachment, whatever. Um, I do think, though, it's important to try, and I try to stay as engaged as I possibly can because this is something that is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully this doesn't become constant. Um but, yeah, so I try to stay on top of it because I, I kind of remember it as I don't remember 9-11. And so oh, it's that's, interesting. That's how young you are. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. And so you it's were, interesting. You weren't alive. I, yeah. Uh, yeah, so this summer I went to New York and I went to the 9-11 memorial. Right. And they that's did a an, staggering place. It is it? amazing. And they did an amazing job of 
it's almost like you're living through it. Mm-hmm. And it when goes, you walk in and you hear yeah. those recordings from yeah. that morning. And so mm-hmm. I think that, um, and there were so many things going through that muse- museum that although I had been told my whole life about what happened in 9-11, it was almost like living through it and you learn so much more. And then I talked to my parents. I'm like, did you know this? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, because that's just something mm-hmm. you knew when you lived through it. And so I think we're going to see similar things happen with this Trump impeachment where we're going to be the ones who live through it. And we're going to be telling our kids, you know, hey, there was this Trump inquiry, but we're going to be the ones that fully understand all the ins and outs and the emotions that were felt during that time. Brilliant. Uh, And for that reason and so many other reasons, I want to try and be strong enough to continue to pay attention. Um, Because of the time, I want to move on to one. uh, Can I end on one happy question? (laughs) Would you indulge me that? Um, It is the the season to be jolly. So would you allow me, Elena, to ask you, uh, do you have a memory of a particularly uh, fond Christmas you'd be willing to share with us? Um, Oh, gosh. Yes, it's really, really a dear memory, and I'm trying my best not to cry as I talk about this, because it's like, so I can do this. Um, my dad passed away about almost two years ago now, and... So young. Yes, it was, oh gosh, what year was it? So this last March was the one-year anniversary, and I remember the Christmas before he passed away, oh gosh, my um my aunt found a video of it the other day he had gone to costco because i absolutely love ginger beer and they were selling this giant pack of these ginger beer sodas that i love and the video is just him you know he's walking out but my aunt sees him stops and pulls out her her phone to say hi and record him and he's just talking with her about like how excited he is to get home and wrap it up for me and when she showed me the video a couple weeks ago, it was just like, like that Christmas when he gave me it, I mean, it didn't, I was like, oh, wow, thanks, Dad, that's cool. But now, like, especially with him gone, seeing the video and seeing the love he had for me to get to get excited about giving me a present. Thank you for that beautiful reminder that we just don't know. We don't know. And it's the little things. Oh, Elena, thank you for sharing that. That was beautiful. Would you share it? Do you have a, a memory of a favorite Christmas? Uh, yeah. Um, so in our family, we, uh, we always joke that our tradition is working. So every holiday, <laughs> we always have some project that we go out and work on. And so and one of the biggest projects, though, was... Um, just two Christmases ago where and we moved um, well my, most of my family had moved before but I had finished finals and so me and my dad uh, drove up to Utah from San Diego uh, from, uh, on Christmas Eve and we ended up there it was a snowstorm and we didn't get there until like 2 o'clock Christmas morning and then you know I got there and it was Christmas, and I knew absolutely no one. I was in this new house, and there were presents, and there was snow, and I was like, what is this stuff? Anyways, and so, but that, 
I think it was just one of the most memorable Christmases that I think I've ever had. Just it was bittersweet, you know. I said bye to all my friends before we weren't going to see each other in a long time, and then I just got a ton of time one on one with my dad. We talked about a ton of stuff. And just kind of the change that was happening, going from you know leaving all my friends and having to make new ones, and then I came here and Christmas Day, it helped me focus on what was important because I didn't have any distractions at all. It, I was a blank slate. It was just my family in this house in somewhere that I didn't know. And so that's just one Christmas that I'll always remember. No, a beautiful story. Welcome to Utah. (laughs) What about for you, Sarah? Um, uh, well, I'm usually sick on Christmas Day, but when it comes to (laughs) (laughs) oh, that's awful. So I can't say I have like a lot of wonderful memories from the actual day itself. But usually, when I think of Christmas, it's it's generally the whole month of December and November, and the memories all kind of get mashed together but one memory that I really cherish was from I believe it was last winter or two winters ago my family went to what was it called Tiny Tots Tots Tiny tots? tots for children. It's oh, toys for tots. Toys for tots. Not tater tots. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we went and we made gingerbread houses with the children there, oh. and it was so sweet. And just seeing how lonely a lot of people are around Christmas, and being able to serve them and to be with them, um, and to laugh with them, even though a lot of them were in the state of mind where they couldn't physically laugh but to see their eyes light up was a very sweet moment that brings up such an important point sarah that as we speak even here there might be someone listening who for them this is the hardest time Mm -hmm. and so you know as we're pumping gas today or walking through the store the person we pass may be having the hardest time it may not be a joyful time for them And so perhaps we could smile at them or even just send love to them in our thoughts. And and that could be our Christmas gift to them. Um, We don't know what our our brothers and sisters are going through. Um, So I say that with a just with an open heart because we just don't know. So that's that's a wonderful gift and bit of wisdom to share. Thank you for that. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Elena, my beautiful guest. (laughs) Please come back and see me again. Let's do this again. All right, everyone. Uh, uh, Happy holidays to you, and we'll see you next week on Through Their Eyes.